Well, we invite you to turn uh, with us in First Samuel to chapter 27 as we continue our sermon series uh, through this book. Uh, believe it or not, just uh, I think four messages or so uh, left in our, our series that we began all the way back in February as we work through uh, this book of the Bible, continuing to focus on our, our sort of grand theme, overarching theme of who is king and recognizing really at each turn that uh, whatever the good or bad actions of the earthly kings we're seeing in this book, the, uh, the ultimate king, the ultimate righteous and perfect king is, is God. As we see that overarching theme in the past uh, few weeks, we continue to specifically see how the, the kingship uh, is, is working in the life of God's people, even as David, King David, is on the run. Uh, basically, the last ten chapters or so of 1 Samuel, we have uh, David on the run. Uh, Sam Fielder preached last uh, week in my absence as I was gone on the Clarkston mission trip about chapter 25 where you have Nabal and and Abigail and this encounter that, that David runs into as he's again fleeing and sort of on the run. And we see how God watches over those who respect God's anointed one. David has not become king yet, but he's been anointed and uh, Nabal is dealt with. Uh, significantly by the Lord because of his sort of offense to to David. And then we also saw how Abigail was greatly blessed for her recognition of how God was working. David, at the same time, we see is sort of close to battle, uh, almost about to fly off the handle at certain times. And it's a mixed bag in his response to, to dealing with the sort of situation that he's in, that the Lord has placed him in. We saw that uh, last week and then the previous week, actually, we looked at, at chapter 24 and then chapter 26. We looked at those together. Chapter 26 comes immediately before the verses we're in today. And we saw that uh, David, uh, really in a remarkable way, uh, trusting God's sovereign goodness, has several opportunities to, to kill Saul, the, the king of Israel, who's trying to eliminate David, even though David really has done nothing wrong and only done good things to try to help Saul, Saul is out to get him. And yet David is able to hold back and and respect and recognize God's sovereign goodness. And in all of this, we see how David is uh, at times seems to be uh, perfectly on track in a way that really is uh, admirable. And we we would really long to emulate in other places. He seems to be on the edge or maybe stepping over the line in some of the actions he takes. And we continue to see this today in one of the shorter chapters, chapter 27, as David now heads across enemy lines back to this King Achish of the Philistines that he had, had sort of sought some harbor with in the past. But when he had dipped his toe there in the past, Achish was not aware that Saul and and David were at odds. So David had to backtrack out of that situation quickly before. Now Achish, you know, full knowledge. Everyone knows that Saul's out to get David. So Achish is trying to turn this to his advantage. David is just trying to find a place to have shelter as best he 
can. And so I invite you to read along with me as I read aloud and we'll see. Uh, we're going to talk about a couple of different things today, but overarching theme is just how God deals David a challenging situation. And David is, uh, you know, at some places stumbling, at some places walking faithfully, but in all in all, trying to do the best he can with a really tough situation to glorify God in the midst of it. Uh, so read along with me, starting in verse 1 of chapter 27 of First Samuel. Where it says, then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over. He and the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maot, king of Gath, And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, if I found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in favor in one of your country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day, Achish gave him Ziglag. Therefore, Ziglag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now, David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from as old as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, donkeys and camels and the garments and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say against Negev and Judah, against the Negev of the Jeremelites or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell us and say, So David has done such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines and Achish trusted David, thinking he's made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray today that you would show us good things from it that we could uh, be strengthened in our recognition of your glory and strengthened in our walk with you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said earlier, it was truly remarkable to be able to be over in this area of Clarkston, Georgia, where... As I believe we've shared already, there's about 6,000, 5 to 6,000 international refugees uh, located at any one time. It's one of, I guess, five or six main locations where the U.S. government, the U.N. sort of work together to locate uh, these folks, many of whom have been in a, uh, in a refugee camp in some other country, usually sort of a way station. Some of them fleeing Burma to Thailand and then over here, others from the Middle East going to Turkey and then over here, uh, some of them having lived in a very basic tent with maybe even no running water or electricity for months, if not years before. They come here to the United States people on the edge 
people with literally just the belongings on their back to their possessions coming here to this country. Fascinating to sit in the apartment with an Iranian uh, family. The uh, hus- the uh, older children had uh, belonged to the, the wife by a first marriage. Their father in Iran had been found with a Bible in his home, uh, summarily taken into the street and executed. Uh, she had fled, if I understand the story correctly, to Turkey with those three older children. And I believe in that context met her current husband. They had two new little ones between the two of them. He had uh, left Iran as well. His his uh, faith had been of a Muslim background, but he sensed that there was something more and was just tired of all the oppressive nature of that regime. And in Turkey, of all places, people shared the gospel with him and he came to faith in Christ as well. Uh, another uh, family that we visited with were from Burma and the, the wife was there. She knew actually four or five languages, but the interns from the sort of college refugee program that we were a part of, they were going by a couple times a week to teach her English. You know, she, she knew a bunch of other languages, but just not the one for the country that she's currently in because she had been moved around in Burma with uh, decades of turmoil and strife and uh, you know, militant revolts, those kind of things. Uh, her husband, Shah, came home at one point and was elated and sat and talked with me for about 45 minutes. His English was a bit better than than hers, although uh, although not uh, not flawless. But uh, but he was elated that he had received about a dollar fifty an hour raise after two years working at his ten dollar an hour uh, job. And was also excited to see how God was working in his life to enable him to forgive and show forgiveness and how they were growing through one of the Burmese congregations there. It was something just to give you a taste of all the people we had opportunities to sit with, to uh, see these folks that had come from a situation where they really have nowhere to turn uh, on the fringe, not sure who to trust, not sure where to go. And how appropriate, really, as we think about David's situation here. He's a man now without a home. He's tried multiple times to sort of reconcile, if you will, with Saul. And Saul will say that that's what he's doing, but he never actually does it. There's a sort of false repentance that keeps happening there. Uh, David now is at the edge to where he's going into these foreign Lands And sort of, you know, we've seen him already sort of tell lies to cover his story. Now it almost looks like he's in some kind of alliance with the the foreign powers. He's he's struggling. He's on the edge. And it is a reminder for us. And if you don't take anything else away from today, maybe take this of the, the scriptural truth that we as believers are strangers and are aliens in this world. Right. Even where we see many comforts around us and we like to feel at home, we all know those situations where the rugs pulled out from under us. Maybe there's some loss. Maybe there's uh, some job transition. Maybe there's some conflict. Maybe there's some change of uh, financial well-being. Something jars us a bit and we feel we're reminded of what's really true of us all along, that we're, we're sort of strangers. We're sort of refugees in this world As believers in Christ, it's God's world, and yet there's so much that is broken and evil. So we feel that tension, 
And David is uh, wrestling and struggling with that tension as well. And here's the beautiful thing, though. Those moments are actually good for us. We hate them. We hate to be in those places where we're more dependent, right? Where we recognize we're really hopeless. We, we can't stand it. We do everything we can to keep it at bay. And yet God is actually good to allow us to be reminded at various points that we need him. We need him more than we would realize. So that's what we see here in these verses. And on top of that, we see David kind of dealing with the challenging hand he's been dealt in the best way he can, trying to live it out by faith. We're going to walk through some of the actions he takes and try to discern what all's going on. I can't believe I'm saying this. This is so cliche, but it seems like it might be memorable for us. It would seem that one of the messages of this passage is that when God deals you lemons, God's probably trying to help you make lemonade. It would seem that way in these verses, and maybe that'll help us remember it. And our passage today is a good place for us to kind of exhale at this part of 1 Samuel. As I said, we're coming into the last few weeks of this uh, sermon series, but we're in this section of the last 10 chapters or so of the the book of Sam, Samuel. And, and, and as we look at the issue I want us to focus in on today, I want to say, first off, there's, there's bigger fish to fry in the Bible. Okay? And how we sort of land on some of the things we're going to talk about today is not going to uh, cause our salvation probably to go one way or the other. It's probably not even going to drastically throw off our take on the book of First Samuel. But, uh, but we're not just here whistling Dixie. Uh, each Sunday morning, we want to try to deal with God's revealed word as best we can. And this chapter 27, as we've said many times, part of the process of going through a book of the Bible, taking the next chapter each time, is it brings things to us that maybe wouldn't necessarily be the number one thing we would choose to talk about. And, and so what I want us to try to do is to, to get these, this chapter in the context of the last ten chapters. May, maybe this will help you. I don't know how many, everybody's probably saw one. Did everybody see a fireworks show in the last two days? Most everybody, raise your hand if you saw a fireworks show. Okay. How many of you saw a fireworks show that had, you were tuned into a radio or there was music that was going along with it? Give me a hand. Okay. So, so a few folks. All right. About half of our minutes. All right. Well, I've been to a lot of those kind of fireworks shows. And, and, and here's the deal. I mean, I love fireworks. Who doesn't like stuff blowing up? I mean, it's just awesome. And you can shoot one firework and blow it up, or you can shoot a hundred fireworks and blow it up. I mean, who? either way, it's fun. And, and you can understand kind of what's going on there, or you could just watch a bunch of explosions. You know, it's, it's all good stuff. But if you've been to one of those shows where you have the radio deal and you listen to it, and, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, these explosions aren't just cool in themselves. They're meant to follow some kind of theme, some sort of melody that's going along with it, some patriotic song, some Lee Greenwood, right? Something to get us kind of in the patriotic mode. And I think maybe that's a way we can look at going through these chapters. We've been picking one or two off a, at a pop going through the last uh, ten chapters of First Samuel. And it's kind of like, boom, you know, awesome explosion or ten, you know, cool firework explosions. But But how much more helpful if we can kind of... Get the melody, get the tune that's going along through all of this. So I want to try to, to nibble at a little bit of that today if we can. 
as we look at this, uh, th- this, this question, this little bit of quagmire, and uh, even some in our own congregation and I have been discussing, discussing this matter to try to get at a little bit, and it's this. On the multiple occasions when King David is on the run, when he takes the drastic actions that he does to flee from Saul, including lying, being deceitful, including uh, acting like he's lost his mind at one point with, uh, you know, drool coming down the side of his beer, beard, including, uh, you know, going and appearing to align with foreign, a foreign entity in these verses today. And all of that is, is David out of step with God? Is he kind of on a neutral path? Or is he... You know, walking in sort of flawless righteousness. Now, which one of those things is taking place? What are we supposed to learn from that part of it? Again, we've, we've seen overall, and I'll, I'll remind us of this, we've seen overall that, that the Bible, and especially as we look at the Old Testament, it's not first and foremost a book about sort of role models of the faith that we're supposed to emulate. There is that. There are places we should emulate the people in the Bible. But first and foremost, it's really a book about one hero, one person we should seek and seek to live for. And that is the living God. He's the rescuer. He's the deliverer. He's the one that does the great deeds ultimately. And so we do well to learn what we can from some of the figures in the scriptures like David and see where he does well. But but ultimately, it's meant all of this to point us to the Lord God, to the one who can rescue us in our fallen and broken condition and, and the flawed way that we deal with the circumstances we have in our life. So we want to keep that in mind. And then we, at the same time, also want to recognize, hey, we've got somebody here with with David that's not your run-of-the-mill character, really, even in the Old Testament. I mean, he's, he's one of the big three or four or five, right? you got Moses, you got Abraham, you got David. There's a reason Jesus is called the son of David. He does come from that lineage and line, but it's meant to convey something to us because David ultimately is sort of the pinnacle of the Old Testament kingship. So where we can... Where there's some good things that he does, we ought to try to try to learn from that. We ought to try to benefit from it. So keeping all that in mind, we've got a couple of critiques as we look at our chapter 27 here. I don't know if you want to take a look back there with me at it, starting in verse 1. We see a couple of critiques that maybe come, come to life, and I want to try to address them today. The first is, David seems to be faltering here in his faith. Even in the words that he says here, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. He was promised by Samuel, the prophet, that he was going to be king. He seems to be uncertain about that at this point. What do we kind of do with that? We also probably look at this and we see David versus Saul and we think back to him going up against Goliath. And we say, is this the same guy that went up against Goliath? He's running scared. He's chicken. Why doesn't he do something to just stand there and watch God work? Maybe he's lacking faith because he's on the run. It seems like maybe that would be the case. And then we got this even thornier, probably, issue. Uh, The fact that he keeps going and trying to get help and maybe even lining up against the enemies of God's people. Maybe it doesn't seem like a huge deal to us in our modern world where countries sort of change allegiances and alliances. But this was one of those things that 
had been commanded to God's people, hey, don't don't do this. Don't line up with these foreign powers. So what do we do with all of this? Well, I want us to look at this because as I read some of the feedback, input, commentaries, there's a challenge when we're in this part of Scripture where we can start to be critical of David and not just in a way that we maybe learn from some of his mistakes, but sort of look down our nose at him. Almost be like a Monday morning quarterback. And I don't know why that bothers me, but it bothers me so somewhat. You know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. It's easy to look over David's shoulder and say, you know, you should have thrown the ball there. That guy was open. When reality is, most of us couldn't even, you know, get out on the field and snap the ball, right? You know, that's where I am. So I want us to, to look at this and ask the question, well, you know, what do we learn from David in the midst of this? Certainly in all of it, um, what we're going to see ultimately is that God's working out his plan. God's certainly drawing straight lines with crooked sticks. But I want us to see what it, where is David? You know, where is he in this? Is he walking in faith? Is he kind of neutral? Is he turning away from the Lord? Uh, let's let's try to tackle this. The first thing that I notice in in this passage, especially in its context, is, you know, it doesn't actually condemn David anywhere here. And nor does it praise him. It doesn't do either of those things. And I guess we could draw opposite conclusions you know, from that, depending on how whether a glass is half full people or glass is half empty. But I think it's especially important, secondly, in light of the overall context here. You know, if you read ahead and you are familiar with the biblical story generally, David messes up big time. All right. And we're already seeing that he's doing some things, you know, he's, he's unwilling to, you know, take on Saul some ways that maybe he could. And yet he's going and killing these people almost, it seems, capriciously just to keep up the appearance that he's with Achish, even though he's really not killing enemies of Achish. He's killing enemies of Israel. So, you know, it's just it seems peculiar. He's got he's got multiple wives. You already see that. So we're just like, OK, he doesn't seem to be uh, following the teetotal of God's law. And yet, he's not really condemned here in the way that he is with Bathsheba and with Uriah. It's crystal clear. Nathan comes to him and rebukes him. With Saul and other places in 1 Samuel, God is clear that Saul, you have messed up. And there's no doubt about it. It's in black and white here for us. So that, to me, gives us a little pause on how we should evaluate all that David's doing here and in the other places in these last ten chapters. What about his words here at the beginning of chapter 27. What about this statement? Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Um, It it looks like maybe he's uh, faltering in his faith, but uh, let's think about that a minute. What options does he have? What options does he have? He's uh, they've already said David killed his tens of thousands and Saul his thousands. So to me, this is a little bit like the Wild West. You know, you got one town and you got two folks that are there, you know, vying for authority. And and if David's a gunslinger and Saul's a gunslinger, apparently David is a ten times better shot. Okay, does that make sense? So if guns are pulled, who's going to win? David is going to win. So his words, they, they could be read in the sense that he's lacking faith, but... The reality is, is he does have to get out of there. Otherwise, he's, if he doesn't pull the trigger, 
He's, he's going to get killed somewhere or another. He's tried to reconcile with Saul. He's done what he could. That's the way I read it, which goes along with the idea of Goliath. It's not an exact parallel, is it? It's apples to oranges. Yeah, he went toe to toe with Goliath, but he was allowed to kill Goliath. He was supposed to kill Goliath. He can't kill Saul. He can't do anything about Saul's situation. He's basically be committing suicide to stick around, you could argue. And then we get to the issue of the covenant with foreigners and, and where he stands on that. And this, to me, is a little bit more dicey. I don't know. Uh, it, it may, maybe he is stepping, stepping over the line here. To me, though, maybe we view it through this lens. You know, if you see a, uh, a, a wife in the neighborhood, married woman, and she uh, leaves her house one evening and heads over to the home of a, a bachelor gentleman, that's living in the neighborhood and then stays there for a couple of days, right? Raise a few eyebrows, wouldn't it? Look a little bit, you know, questionable. Unless there's maybe no other doors open for her to go and we find out the family situation is abusive. She's, she's running for her life and the only place to go is with this particular bachelor. Maybe that's the case. Maybe it's not exactly for David, but it seems to me, again, we just we ought to be cautious about a sort of self-righteousness with some of these figures in the Old Testament. We don't want to give them more than what they're worth, but we also don't want to spend all our time sort of Monday morning quarterbacking and looking what they're doing wrong. When, in fact, the invitation, I think, that these verses give to us is to look at ourselves and to say, man, how am I? David's faced up against the wall. Yeah, maybe he's not always making the best moves, but how am, how am I doing? Rather than pointing the finger at him, how am I doing with the, the challenges I have in my life, with the struggles that I have with being a, a refugee in this world, with the places where I'm insecure and lacking comfort, and I run to things to try to give myself comfort and security instead of to the Lord. Maybe David's slipping up, maybe he's not, but the real message is meant to be for us and for us in our walk with the Lord. So today, as we think about these verses and seek to apply them, definitely don't want to say that David's any less sinner than what he is. He was a fallen man, like each one of us here today, men and women and little ones as well. And he needed God's grace and God's mercy. We see that throughout the Psalms. And he's taken some actions here that seem a little bit crazy to us at, at points maybe are even stepping over the line. But to me, the the main message here ought to be the majesty of the fact that in your life and in mine, God's pleased to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. That's really true for you and for me. We ought to seek to obey God in everything he gives us to do. We're not going to do it perfectly. The beautiful thing is that we serve a God who directs our paths, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, struggle sometimes to understand all that you want us to get from your word. Lord, we uh, sometimes elevate these figures in the Bible and set them up on a pedestal as some kind of model for us that they're not really intended to be. Other times we 
seem to want to kick them around a little bit and make ourselves uh, feel better. Uh, Lord, as we look at, at David here and his actions and really a, a refugee, we're reminded, Lord, that, that, that we're refugees in this world. It's your world. And so we have your love and your kindness. And so we have that comfort with us. But uh, we're not at home and we can't ultimately be at home. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to set our mind on things above, not in a way that we'd be so heavenly minded that we're no, no earthly good. But, Lord, that we would uh, know and see you working and carrying out your will. And then, Lord, in the in the things that we're facing, the challenges that we encounter, the things that make us feel insecure, make us feel scared, fearful, remind us of that alien status. Lord, that we draw close to you. We see your power in our lives. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.